0: Okay, let's go ahead and get our Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 17. Glad to have everybody out today. Hope you've had a good week in the sunshine. Everybody may be a little bit tanner than they were last week. No, you have to hide from it, don't you? You're either white or red, right? Okay. Acts chapter 17, and let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer, and we will get started. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. We do thank you for the day that you've given us, Lord. We thank you for the, the beautiful weather we've had and a uh, time to go out and enjoy it, Lord. We just uh, thank you so much for your word that we can come in today and gather around it and study for just a little while and learn about you, Lord, and hopefully grow in our, our faith our knowledge, Lord. Lord, we just pray that you would uh, bless our service today. I pray that you would guide and direct me and my my thoughts, Lord, my my words, Lord, that the things that I say will be uh, pleasing to you, that they would be true and accurate and helpful, Lord. And I just pray, ask you that you be with each person here, Lord, bless them for their efforts in coming out, Lord, their desire to know you, their desire to grow in their walk with you, Lord. And I just pray you bless that, draw them closer to you, encourage them, and Lord, just uh, minister to their needs, whatever they may have, Lord. Be it those who are still on their way out today, watch over them, Lord. And Lord, I just pray that you bless our services. Lord, we thank you so much for all that you do and all these things we pray in Jesus' name and amen. Amen. Okay, you want to remember where we've been, what we've been doing, what we've been talking about. I'll throw it to you guys for once. You guys can do the review. Uh, um, Okay, so last week Paul and the Philippian jailer. So he had come into the region. God had sent him there through different different methods to guide him and direct him show his will. He got there, and things weren't all rosy, were they? And so he soon found himself in jail. Uh, but in jail, he was still trusting God, still praising God, right? Right. And so he was still keeping a Christ-like spirit, Christ-like attitude, even in bad situations and circumstances. And one, one reason we always need to be mindful for that is as Christians, we are witnesses, we have an audience, right? And so while they were singing and while they were uh, praying and while Paul was probably preaching, uh, everyone was listening. And God saw fit to use that to reach these people, to prick their conscience, to show them their need of a Savior and uh, to open up their eyes. And uh, he sent an earthquake in the middle of the night not to free Paul, but to uh, be a, uh, a testimony, I guess, to the rest of the people there, right? And so the, the jails opened up, but nobody left, and the Philippian jailer was ready to commit suicide because uh, he thought that all of those he was responsible for had escaped, and he would pay for it with his life, probably in a torturous method. And so Paul saw what was going on, and he says, Don't do yourself any harm and told him we're all here none of us have fled none of us have escaped and the Philippian jailer immediately said what must I do to be saved and that is where we all need to get to and hopefully we've all gotten to that place we realize that we are lost and undone that we need a savior what must we do to be saved and the response was to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ not just believe in his existence not just believe in him as a person but believe in him as a savior so the Philippians said, what must I do to be saved? And so that's what he was. that was the root question. That was what he was uh, seeking after was salvation. So where is the source of salvation? It is in Christ. And so believing on him is believing that he is able to save, that he is able to deliver. And so uh, that's what we saw last week. Uh, at the end of that, um, Paul was given freedom to leave the place but he didn't uh, go away secretly instead he handled it in such a way that the other believers the new believers there that had just been saved were protected were guarded because the the civil authorities were afraid right civil authorities were afraid because they had seen the workings of God and they had uh, misstepped in punishing Paul without uh without due process, if you will, and because of all those things, they were going to give the believers a wide berth, and that that was going to get the Philippians room to grow, and so today what we'll to be picking up with is uh, Paul willingly departed out of Philippi. He left Luke behind, and he's going to go to the next city, and now there were many towns. There were many cities all around them, but Paul, what his habit was, what the way he uh, worked in his ministry, he was going to uh, large cities, major hubs, uh, important and prominent places. And the reason being, if he's to reach the world with the gospel, you start in the big areas, get a church planted. As they grow, then they will be able to take care of the smaller areas. They reach out from the big areas into the smaller ones. And that's what we see happen if we go back and we study a bit of church history. If we look into some of these churches that Paul started, that they went on to evangelize the region after he left. So he was setting up mission outposts uh, to begin in that region, and then they would spread from there. And that's what he was doing. And so today in chapter 17, we're going to come to Thessalonica, and, uh, a large city, a prominent city in Greece. It is a city you can still go to today. Uh, it's pronounced slightly different, spelled slightly different, but it's still Thessalonica. Okay? Okay. And so, um, Acts chapter 17, let's go ahead and read uh, down to about verse number 9. It says, Now, when they had passed through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered. And risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed, and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks, uh, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason. And sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason uh, hath received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. So we'll stop there for right now. And our our first uh, stop in this chapter in Thessalonica, it says that uh, Paul passed through a few different cities between uh, Philippi and Thessalonica. He didn't set down roots. He didn't stay very long. These more or less were uh, overnight stops, maybe, maybe a couple days at the most. And he moved on where he came to Thessalonica. And his first thing that he does whenever he comes into a city, if there is a synagogue, he goes to the synagogue. Now, I've, I've said this many times, but he was going where he had influence. He was going to the places where they already had a basic knowledge and a basic understanding of the things of God. And so that gave him a foundation to build off of or at least a, an open door to begin Okay, And so this is what he would do whenever he would come into the city. And it says here in verse number two, and Paul, as his manner was. And this is something interesting to me, is that um, Paul, like any other human being, he was a creature of habit. He had established uh, ways, normal routines, normal ways, habits and how he went about his ministry, habits and how he lived his life. And I believe for us that there are, there's a lot of emphasis on bad habits, right? We think about vices and different things, bad habits, but it is also a good thing for us to establish good habits, to establish good habits, good things that we are going to do, good uh, routines, good things that uh, are going to order our life, that's going to bring uh, some sort of uh, uniformity or whatever to our lives. And Paul had a normal way of how he ministered, how he lived. And I think it was more than just this. I believe each day that Paul would have had a routine. He would have had things that were important, things that he had planned out, things that he made sure was getting accomplished. And this is just kind of a little bit of a side note, but I think that's important for us, that our life is ordered in some sort of a way that it's not chaos, that we are putting plans in place to do the things that are important, that are beneficial in our lives, because if we don't, they won't end up getting done,
1: exactly. right? Yeah.
0: Uh, you've got to do things intentionally, yeah. and I believe that's important for us, uh, not just to be uh, doing things for the sake of routine or for the sake of habit, not just being in a rut, but planning out things and doing things intentionally to make sure that the important things get done. Yeah. We have a, a plan of attack. Yeah. I have no doubt that whenever Paul would come into a city, all those who were with him knew exactly what was going to happen. As far as Paul was concerned, they may not know how the people are going to react. They may not know what kind of response they're going to, if they're going to get put in jail, if they're going to get stoned with stones, or if they're going to have a huge revival in the entire town, turn to Christ. They don't know that, but they knew what Paul was going to do. He was predictable. He was steady in that effect, even though he was so zealous and so fiery. And so as he came to town, his manner was to go into the synagogue and being from Jerusalem, being a trained rabbi, that's what Paul was, uh, they would willingly accept him in, and they would be probably excited and have this visitor, especially since he was from Jerusalem. Yeah. And as he came into the city there, uh, he was a... Uh, I'm going to blank on the name of this, but anyway, he was not just a Jew, but he was thoroughly... Um a Hellenistic Jew. There you go. That's the word I'm looking for. He was a Hellenistic Jew, which means that he was one that had been influenced by the Greek culture and he could speak Greek and all of those things. And so him being in Greece, this is a bridge for him. He has a good grasp on what it means to be a Jew. He has a good grasp on what it means to be a Greek. Okay? And so he's coming in, he's ministering. He goes into the synagogue. On the Sabbath day, they welcome him in as a teacher, and he opens the scriptures and begins to reason with them out of the scriptures. Okay, And I want to look at this for just a few moments because uh, we get the wrong idea a lot of times on what it means to be a witness, on what it means to try to share the gospel with people. And a lot of times people have the wrong idea that... Christianity is a blind faith, that we are believing on it as if it's uh, there's no substance to it, that it is completely unreasonable, as if somehow you have to uh, divorce all reasoning and all uh, intelligence away in order to believe the things of God. But what Paul would do whatever he would come in here, he wasn't brash, he wasn't arrogant, He wasn't confrontational in his approach. But instead that he would come in, he would sit down, and this idea of reasoning, he was conversing with them. Okay, He was talking back and forth. He was having a dialogue with them about the scriptures. And he was going through in a reasonable approach, talking to them. And uh, whenever, whenever we're looking at the Jews' beliefs, when we're looking at the things that he would come in contact with in the synagogues, the Jews had done what many of us like to do as well. They had um, focused on the things that they liked. right? As they were reading through the scriptures, as they were getting familiar with the Old Testament and with God's promises, as they were getting uh, familiar with all of the prophecies, they were clinging to the parts that they liked. And they were ignoring the parts that they don't like. And so they were viewing the Old Testament kind of like a buffet, right? You ever go to a buffet and you eat? They're, they're not as common here. They're very common in the United States. But you go and you're like, I like this. I don't like that. I'll get some more of that, a little bit of that, and I'm going to stay away from that. You pick and choose, right? And so this is what they were doing with Scripture. And I can't really knock them because even us as uh, 21st century Christians today, still do the same thing with Scripture, and we focus on the things that we like. Uh, if you want a, uh, a good example or confirmation of this, just scroll through a Facebook or Twitter feed and find what kind of Bible verses people have memorized. Find out what aspects of God people focus on. Find out what it is that is important to them and what it is that they are looking for in Christianity, right? Right. And they've done the very same thing. And and the reason I'm bringing this out, the Jews, they had focused on uh, Christ and his kingdom. They were expecting a Messiah that was going to come and rule and reign. I know I brought this out in the past. Uh, They were expecting a Messiah that would rule and that would reign, that would overthrow the Gentile governments, that would set up his throne in Jerusalem, and that all the nations would come and basically bow at his feet and that he would rule Uh, all nations, and the Jews would be the center of that. That's what they were looking for because that is prophesied in the Old Testament. And so they were looking for that type of king. That was one reason why they rejected Jesus whenever he came. That was one reason why they, uh, they ended up crucifying Jesus because he didn't fit that narrative. He didn't fit what they were expecting him to be because they focused on just the parts of Scripture that they liked. They were ignoring the many passages that said before he came to conquer, before he was going to wear the crown, he was going to go to the cross. Uh, they missed out passages such as Isaiah 53. Uh, he missed out where it said that he was as a lamb done before he shears. Uh, he opened on his mouth all these things that he was despised and rejected. That, uh, all these things that it said about him coming and suffering and being uh, rejected by his own, being uh, uh, beaten and killed and ridiculed by those of his own household, all of these things we find in the Old Testament, they ignored those things. As a matter of fact, as I was studying this out, what they do to get away from those things is that instead of applying those to the Messiah, they apply them to Israel. Okay, if you ever wonder why they, how they get around the passages about the suffering Savior is they apply it to the Jews, and all the suffering comes upon them. And so they say, this is the suffering that we went through. These passages that talk about uh, the the son, the, the beloved, all these ones uh, that is going to suffer, that's going to be ridiculed, that's going to be hurt, that's going to be killed, that's referring to the persecution of the Jews. That's how they look at it, okay? But anyway, uh, as Paul comes to them, he says, wait, you're looking at the scriptures all wrong. You're misunderstanding this. Let me lay this out for you. And he is going through with the precision of a surgeon going through and laying out the scriptures and drawing all the connections. And he is showing the people that uh, all throughout the scriptures, there is a pattern that is set forth that there is a persecution before an exaltation. And you find it all the way from the very beginning of scriptures all the way through. Uh, You find, for instance, before Job was exalted at the end, he went through his time of testing, right? Before Joseph was the right hand of the Pharaoh, he went through the prison, right? Before Moses was able to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, uh, he went through time in the backside of the desert. Uh, Before the people of Israel came out to the promised land, they were oppressed and they were slaves. And so you see this pattern existing all the way through Scripture where before God exalts, there is a time of suffering. And that comes to Christ as well. Before he exalts, there was going to be a time of suffering. And so the cross came before the crown, and Paul goes through and he is showing them all these things out of the Scriptures. He's giving the examples. He is giving the... um, the, Prophecies, all of the things that point to Jesus being the Messiah, and they bring those parallels up and shows how they fit Jesus' life, his ministry, all of the things that the Bible said that he would be, Jesus was, and that he rose again from the dead, as the Bible had said that he would, that he was going to come again, and the next time he was going to rule and he was going to reign, and they needed to repent, they needed to accept him as Savior if they wanted to reign with him whenever he returned. And so that's what he was laying out before them. It was a reasonable faith. It wasn't something they just had to take his word on. He didn't just come and say, hey, I know all this, God revealed it to me, you just have to believe it. Instead he went through and he, he reasoned with him from the Scripture. He says, do you see this, do you see this, do you see this? And I think for us as Christians today, we need to realize that our faith needs to be a reasonable faith. We need to know why we believe what we believe. We need to know what we believe. We need to be able to defend those things because especially in the day which we live in, it's coming more and more under fire. And if we don't know why we stand and what we stand on, it'll be easy for those who come and are critical, and are condemning, and are mocking and ridiculing the faith that we have, it'll be easy for them to erode the foundation we're standing on, okay? Not only that, we need to know so that whenever we're talking with people, we're not just relying on flimsy, uh, flimsy cliches and things to try to, to get them to believe, but instead we can put forth a reasonable faith, and we can go back and show that it is more than just a blind faith, but it is one that is rooted in truth, that there is evidence to back it up, and that there is reason for them to believe. Another thing with this is we we need to realize, too, how we need to be patient with people as we're seeking to be a witness to them. Now notice in this passage it says that he reasoned with them in the synagogue for three weeks, three Sabbaths, right? Now as we're reading through, a lot of times we read through quickly, and we assume that all these things happen quickly, right? But he is reasoning with them for three weeks in the synagogue. He's having multiple conversations, no doubt, with people throughout the week in between the Sabbath days. People are coming to him. They're asking him about things. They are uh, conversing back and forth. They're continuing this dialogue even after their synagogue service is over. And so Paul is going through. He's answering their questions. He is giving evidences. He's giving proofs. And throughout this time, uh, the gospel has this tendency to divide. Okay? The word of God tells us that it is sharper than any two edged sword, dividing asunder, right? And this may be slightly different than the context of that passage, but the gospel does divide. The word of God does divide. And so as Paul is doing this, opening and alleging throughout the Scripture, as he's reasoning with the people, there are those that are saying, I see it. I understand, yes, Paul is right. This Jesus that he's preaching was the Son of God, is the Son of God, that he did come, he died, but he resurrected. He is the payment, he is the the one that we are looking for, and we believe that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior, and they put their faith and trust in Jesus, and they were converted. But then there were others that said, I don't believe it. I refuse. I'm going to hang on to what I have believed all along. They rejected it and became more hostile toward it. And so there was this this division that was going on throughout this week, and it took took time. It took time for them to do this. And even whenever it says that they reasoned uh, with them out of the scriptures in the synagogue for these three weeks, that's just until he got kicked out of the synagogue. We see a pattern that was going on with Paul as he would come and he would go to the synagogue as long as they would allow him to continue coming. But after a while, they would uh, rescind the invitation and they would say, you're not welcome here anymore. So I imagine he came for the three weeks on the fourth week he showed up and they're like, no, we're done with you. Don't come don't in here. That. Maybe he didn't show up at the synagogue. Maybe they sent him word throughout the week and they're like, no, we're done. Maybe at the end of the third week, they're like, don't come. But something happened there between that third and fourth week and they said don't come back to the synagogue but it doesn't say yet that he left immediately we don't know how long he remained in Thessalonica but the longer that he was there the more people was coming to Christ the more those who were against Christ those who were hostile to the gospel were getting, the Bible tells us they were jealous they were moved with envy, verse number 5 and so the more they were moved with envy and with rage and the the more hostile they got toward Paul and they started deciding we have to do something about Paul. And so once again the point that I'm trying to get across here is that Paul was patiently ministering the gospel, sharing the gospel, giving evidences, giving proofs, more than likely repeating the same things over and over again. If you've ever tried to talk with someone, especially talking about the things of God, sometimes it takes multiple times of them hearing it before it clicks. Okay? We have this idea. We want to go show the gospel to someone one time. They're like, oh, this is great. This is brilliant. Accept it. Pray a prayer. They're saved and happy days going down the line. Mm -hmm. But that's not the way that it goes. There is a time uh, the Bible compares uh, compares it to sowing and reaping. There is a time that you come through and you're preparing the soil. Mm -hmm. You've got to cultivate. You've got to dig it up. You've got to break up the fallow ground. You have to uh, take that hard ground and break it up so that those small seedlings can send down roots into the ground and actually get rooted and grow, right? So there's a time of cultivation, there's a time of sowing the seed, there's a time of st- tending to those small plants and allowing them to grow and ta- and those plants will grow up and eventually they will produce fruit. But from the time of the preparation of the field to the time of the harvest, right?
1: Yeah.
0: It takes time. Mm-hmm. But in our minds, in our way of thinking, we want to come, then prepare the fields, throw the seed down and expect to come out tomorrow and harvest. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that the way modern Christianity works? Yeah. I want to go, I want to recklessly throw a seed down and then come tomorrow and say, where's the fruit? Uh, I know um, my, yeah. father, my father-in-law has always been one, he plants stuff everywhere he goes. Back whenever I worked with him, we'd be sitting and we'd eat our lunch, and he'd be eating a peach, and he'd take the pit from the peach, and he'd dig a little hole and he'd plant it down the ground, or he'd take his apple core after he's done eating an apple, he'd plant it under the ground. Okay, and I don't know in West Virginia how many different fruit trees are growing in the <laughs> random places people be going through. And maybe now they're producing yeah. fruit. I don't know. Yeah. But he would plant them uh, uh, in his in his garden at home. He would plant them wherever he went. He was planting fruit trees. But it took a long time from the time that he planted it to the time that you were actually able to go and pluck fruit from those trees. Okay, It takes time to work a harvest. And so Paul is doing this here in Thessalonica and um, spending all this time it says in verse 3 opening alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen from the dead and that this Jesus whom I preached to you is Christ. That's what we were talking about there a minute ago that he wasn't just coming to conquer. He wasn't just coming to uh, assume a throne. He was coming first to the cross and then to the uh, the crown. But it says, as a result of all these things, verse 4, some of them believed. Okay? This is Apostle Paul. Really the preacher of all preachers, right? Outside of Christ. I mean, he was the one, he was the greatest missionary, the greatest evangelist I believe that ever lived. And whenever he came here, some believed. It wasn't a wholesale conversion of the entire city. There were some that believed. And it says they consorted with Paul and Silas. This idea of consorting, it means they threw their lot in with them. They were of their number. They came together with them. This is the separation, this dividing that I'm talking about. And it says... Uh, not just those who were of the synagogue because uh, there were those who were not Jews but those who were God-fearing Gentiles and Greeks that would have been there. And then on top of that, there would have been those in the town that are hearing of what's going on in the synagogue. And as Paul is talking to people in the streets as he's going about, there is a uh, maybe a little bit of a murmuring, a little bit of a noise amongst the streets. People are hearing of this coming and inquiring about this. And so some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas. And of the devout Greeks, a great multitude. Yeah. So the Jews kind of, of the Greeks, a bunch. And it says, and of the chief women, not a few. I find it interesting as well how many times that it emphasizes the women who believe. Because in that time, Women were marginalized. If we've got the feminist movement today and they think that women are marginalized today, they really were back then. And there are lots of, lots of things that's been throughout society for as long as man has existed, as long as man has been in a sinful condition, there have been things that are wrong with society, okay? And so at this time, of course, we've ran into things such as slavery. We've ran into uh, things such as uh, polygamy and adultery, fornication, all these things, and even this idea of uh, the oppression of women and things that was happening in those cultures. And Paul doesn't go in for societal reformation. He's not coming in with a social gospel. He's not trying to reconstruct the go- or reconstruct society. He comes in. He's preaching the gospel. People are accepting it. The Holy Spirit is moving in, their lives are being transformed, and societal norms begin to change. See, Paul's not coming in and preaching against some of these societal sins, if you will. He's coming in and preaching the gospel to people, and whenever society gets a hold of the gospel, society changes. We have it backward today. We come with a social gospel. I say we in a vague, general sense, okay? Okay. But Christianity comes with a social gospel trying to right the ills of society, trying to make the world a better place. And the only thing that's going to make the world a better place is Christ. The only thing that's going to make uh, men turn away from their sinful ideologies and their oppressive ways of doing things is if the gospel gets in them, if the Holy Spirit is indwelling them. And I brought this all out with this idea of the chief women believing and having prominent parts in the church. These people who more than likely were probably... Uh, on the uh, fringes of society, if you will. I know it says chief women, but these people who have been overlooked within all of religion, within all of society, were accepted and came in on equal grounds at the cross. And so there's a change that's taking place. But then in verse number five, we see that the Jews, which believed not, Moved with envy, took unto them lewd fellows, uh, certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, gathered a company and set all the city in an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Okay, so I want you to use your imaginations for a minute. Everybody got imagination, a little bit. <laughs> I've got a, I've got a, a an act of imagination. Maybe mine's enough for you guys too. I don't know, but anyway. Paul is coming into the cities, and he is calmly, rationally, presenting information to the people. Okay? He's not inciting a revolt against the government. He is not coming against the rulers of the synagogue. He is not uh, coming out here with um, arrogance and hostility and making a scene. I don't believe he was even going on the street preacher or street corners and street preaching and condemning the everyone that was around and fire and brimstone and I don't believe that he was doing that. He was coming in, sitting down calmly, instructing, uh, reasoning with the people and preaching the gospel. And he was leaving it to the people to decide what they would do with it. And so there comes a point in time as we're talking to people, as we're sharing the gospel with people, that we must give them the right to accept or to reject. Right? We believe in in the idea that we cannot force salvation, we cannot force Christianity, we cannot force any of these things on anyone. We believe in individual soul liberty. We've heard that term before. Okay. That each person has the liberty to accept or to reject the things of God. Mm -hmm. Paul taught that. Paul believed that. Okay. And so he would come, he would present it, and it was up to each person to decide what they would do with it. Now, he would encourage them to accept it. He wanted them to accept it. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it was up to those people what they would do with it. Mm -hmm. I say all that to say this. Mm -hmm his enemies that did not like him, it wasn't because of his methods. It wasn't because of his demeanor. It wasn't because of how he presented it. They didn't like him because of the effect it was having on them.
1: Right.
0: Okay? And for us as Christians, there are going to be those who don't like us. They are going to be those that reject our message, that are going to attack us, uh, maybe even personally. But let it never be because of our demeanor, our character, the way that we're dealing with people. But instead, let it be for the sake of the gospel. Okay? Mm -hmm. And so anyway, they were moved with envy. They were moved with jealousy because Paul was getting a number of people to believe, to consort with him, to follow the, follow and believe the message that he's been preaching. And they are feeling threatened because they said if he keeps leading people away, if he continues to steal our sheep, if you will, then we're going to lose our position, we're going to lose our promise, we're going to lose our congregation. And so something must be done to stop Paul. They couldn't refute him with truth. They couldn't come against him on the basis of anything with substance and integrity. Instead, they said, we've got to do it through violence. Now, remember, these are religious leaders, right? And so they have um, hired on more than likely. It says, lewd fellows of the baser sort. They went out and got the rabble of the community, the the people who were the troublemakers of society, the ones who weren't out working and weren't out uh, producing and weren't out uh, uh, contributing to society. But anyway, they went to the ones that were troublemakers, that were well known to the law, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so you have the ones that are supposed to represent God going to the ones that are living for the devil. And partnering together and saying, we've got to do something about Paul. And they say, well, we're always looking for a little bit of fun. We're always looking for a way to cause some trouble. And the Jews say, hey, we've got a little bit of money if you will go and make a riot. Oh, they like, we like riots. Yeah. We yeah. can go and uh, loot the local shops. We go and smash <laughs> the places up, steal a TV. They didn't have those back then. <laughs> but anyway... They were ready to have a riot. And he said, Okay, you incite a riot and blame it on Paul. They said, Hey, let's go do it. And so they busted the place up. They went and caused the riot and everything and said they were doing these things on the account of Paul. They came to this man Jason's house. And now this man Jason didn't know Paul a month ago. Right? Paul comes into the town. He doesn't know anyone besides the ones that he enters in with. This is his first time ever being in this region. He doesn't have any connections. But now, after he's been here for just a little bit of time, he has connections. Apparently, he's been staying at Jason's house. The people knew Paul was staying at Jason's house. And they said, let's go and get him. They are ready for uh, mob mentality, uh, mob justice. And if they would have found Paul, who knows what they would have done. They would have beat him, probably. They may have stoned him. Maybe they would have uh, strung him up. Who knows? And they get there. They don't find Paul, and so they get a hold of Jason and they drag him out of that place. And Jason is starting to wonder probably who he was, uh, who he was consorting with. That was the word that I was using, right? And so whenever they bring them to the rulers of the city, now the Romans and the Greeks prided themselves in uh, being civil people. And whenever riots and disorder breaks out, that would have been one of the, the, the biggest sins of society, for there not to be peace. And so they bring the people, or they bring Jason to the rulers of the city, and they say these people who have turned the world upside down are come here as well. And so this is their estimation of Paul. He hasn't been in Europe very long. He hasn't been in Greece very long. But they already know about him. And they said he has turned the world, the Roman world, upside down with the gospel. In other words, they're saying he is a troublemaker. Everywhere he goes, there is chaos. But think of, remember I had you imagining there earlier, imagine Paul coming into town, going to church, sitting down and doing a Bible study. He's the troublemaker. Right? Right? This one who turned the world upside down with the gospel or with turned the world upside down is come here also. And so they branded him as a troublemaker, whenever he's never making trouble, he's just making enemies that make trouble. Okay? One of the lessons I want to bring out of this is just the fact that religion always does the same thing. Paul came against religion at that day and religion was their sincerely held beliefs. They were sincerely wrong. And whenever they were uh, confronted about those beliefs, they have two decisions they can make. Any religion you find in this world, if you come to them and you present to them truth, if you come to them and you reason with them, you give them evidence, they have two different decisions they can make. They can either change they can repent right and say okay I see this now I understand you put valid points to this and I've been wrong and I'm going to change that. How many of the people like admitting they're wrong? Why? <laughs> I'm not holding up my hand because I'm one of them. I'm oh. holding up my hand as an example. We don't like to admit that we're wrong, and so the other the other way that this could go is that they double down. Right? That's kind of a gambling term, right? But they double down. They they say, "Okay, I don't care. I'm not changing what I believe, and now I'm angry at you for daring to confront what I believe and to confuse me." I don't have the ability, I don't have the skill, I don't have the information to resist what you're saying. And so whenever knowledge fails, then emotions come in. And when emotions come in, we do stupid stuff. And so the same thing still happens to this day. There are many people who are sincere in their religion. They're sincere in their beliefs and they're sincerely wrong. And now we, whenever we think about religion today, we think about organized religion, right? We think about denominations. We think about Buddhism and Hinduism and Catholicism. And we think about all the isms, right? But some of our most staunchly defended and most emotionally charged religions today aren't isms. Because a religion is a belief system, right? Isn't that what a religion is? It is a belief system that governs your life, that regulates your life. And today we have many different religions that do not do not center around theology. It's not about gods. We have uh, we have being careful to go into these wokeism. Wokeism, it's still an ism, right? <laughs> but it is a belief system that. People base their lives on, and it's this uh, social justice, this wokeism, this. uh, That's one of them, right? And if you go to them and start reasoning with them, what's their response? They get angry. You're attacking me. No. Because they have rooted their identity in it. This is who they are. And if you start confronting their beliefs that they have built their. Uh, identity on that this defines them as a person they have trouble separating their beliefs from their self and if you are coming in and questioning your belief or questioning their beliefs you are questioning them as a person they take it personally you are attacking us right mm-hmm. so wokeism, the uh, lgbt movement it is an ideology it is a religion uh Uh, global warming, evolution, all these different things, they are religions. They are sincerely held beliefs that people structure their lives around. And these are things that you have trouble, uh, you have trouble with talking talking with people about, reasoning with people about, because they become unreasonable. Okay? And it's easy for us to say that about other people, but we have to be careful as well for ourselves, that we don't follow that same pattern. Because we do not follow cunningly devised fables, but we follow after the truth. And the truth of God can stand on its own. Right? And so we don't have to become envious and jealous, and we don't have to become defensive, but we can present what we believe. We can stand confidently, on the things that we believe without devolving down to an emotional tirade and feeling as if things are a personal attack against us and responding in the same way as they did, right? But we can see the same dynamic that was working at Paul's day. We can see it working today in our day. And we see that people respond to the truth of God's word today the same way as they did back then. And whenever they have no substance to refute it, they bring it to a personal level. It comes down to envy and to uh, insult, right? It comes down to violence. And so if we were to say, okay, this is what I believe. This is why I believe it. We go through and we reason out of scripture. They say, you're a hate monger. You say, well, I don't stand with the LGBT agenda because I see in the Bible that God created man and woman. That he created marriage to be between one man and one woman. That he says that uh, homosexuality is an abomination. They say, well, you are a homophobe. You are a bigot. You are hateful. How dare you hate people like this? And be they, they promote it as being violence toward them. No, I'm just stating that this is not the way that humanity was designed, that this isn't the way that it's meant to function, that there are some things wrong here. And hey, you can live that way, right? They can live that way, but they are not living in line with the God that created them. They say, well, I don't care about God. I don't care about what God says. You will one day. But if you are rejecting it now, if you don't want to hear it now, if you are not in agreement with it now, then okay. You go and do you. You go and you know do your thing, and I'm not going to attack them. I'm not going to imprison them. I'm not going to go out and beat them up or anything like that. But I can state my reasonable opinion without hating them, without attacking them, but yet their response is still going to be, you hate me. Their response is still going to be that you are uh, fear-mongering, that you are, you know, all these different things that we hear on the, the news all the time. We stand against abortion and say that that is murder, right? But what do you have against women? We like women. From the ones that are alive and that are born and that are running around on their own two feet to the ones that are still in their mother's womb, we still love those women. And the men. Right? But they equate that to hate. They say this is a problem. Why? Because it starts infringing on their ability to live any such way they want. It starts confronting the things that they hold sacred, right? Because they like their sin. They like darkness rather than light. They don't like anything that is going to challenge the way that they are living And whenever you bring God into the mix, God is an authority, and that is something that confronts them. Whether they like it or not, God has put in the heart and mind of every single person on this earth a knowledge of himself. They can repress it, they can deny it, but they have a knowledge that there is someone that they're going to give an account to. And whenever we preach the gospel, that God is alive and well that he has judged sin that he has that position on that throne and that he has the ability to say what is right and what is wrong that I don't have that ability that is something that they can't stand because there is an authority outside of them and they're trying their best to deny it and so whenever they uh in Thessalonica whenever they said we refuse to believe it doesn't matter how much proof how much evidence we don't we don't care if it makes sense we refuse to believe because we have built our entire life and our identity on what we think and what we believe and we are not going to let anyone else come in here and make us question it make us doubt it and so they found the rabble of the community made an uproar made a riot tried to find Paul, to beat him, to kill him, do whatever they could with him. Couldn't find him, drug Jason out. And whenever Jason came and stood before the rulers, verse number nine, it says, when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. Basically what they ended up doing is Jason put up a peace bond. Okay? What he did was he says, I'm going to put forth this this bond, this money, to guarantee that there will be no more trouble. And so basically Jason is speaking on behalf of Paul. Paul has uh, been hid by the believers at that time. And Jason says, we're going to see that there's no more problems and we're going to make sure that Paul doesn't stick around. He speaks on behalf of Paul. Now, Paul probably wouldn't have appreciated this. Paul probably wouldn't have went this route. But hey, he, Jason was a new believer, Right. He had the government standing before him. He had an angry mob surrounding him. And he says, okay, I will put forth this sum of money to guarantee that Paul leaves and that things are peaceful now. And so Paul honors that. He leaves, but he leaves people behind to disciple this fledgling church. And he moves on to Berea. And so we come down to verse number 10. And it says, And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews, these were more noble than those of Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Therefore, or because of that, because they were willing to listen, to evaluate, to reason, therefore many of them believed also of honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men, not a few. But... But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge of the word of God, was knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go, as it were, to the sea. But Silas and Timotheus abode there still. So all of this nonsense happened at Thessalonica. Uh, Paul had been there, we don't know how long, probably at least a month, maybe more. Many people believed he had the chance to set with them, disciple them throughout the week, and he left a fledgling church, a foundation there in Thessalonica. He's going to write to them later on uh, in First and Second Thessalonians, further instructing them of truth. Morning. And anyway, he's going to write to them later on and encourage them and help them out and whatnot. But for the time being, he has... Uh, ended his ministry there. He's not allowed to stay. He's not allowed to return. Paul is done with Thessalonica. Okay, As far as his physical presence, he's done there. He's been kicked out. And so he goes on to Berea, and Berea as a city was uh, probably some 60 to 75 kilometers away from Thessalonica. It was several days' journey away. And so he, he came down to Berea, and he began doing the same thing went to the synagogue, began teaching and preaching. If you were Paul, wouldn't you have caught with the synagogues by now? But anyway, he began teaching. He began reasoning with them out of the scriptures. And it says that these ones at Berea were more noble. Okay? They weren't just going to come in and uh, resist everything and angrily be hostile toward it. Instead, they said, okay, we're confident enough in what we believe and in the Word of God and God's abilities and our brains, our abilities to reason these things out, go ahead, Paul, let us hear it, okay? And so Paul starts going through all these things, and they have a true Bible study, and this is going on throughout the week. It's going on on the, the Sabbath day, and Paul's meeting with people he's studying, and He is opening up the scriptures, and they're going home after the Sabbath, and they're saying, okay, I need to research this some more. He's made some good points. Uh, I need to see what the Bible really does say about this. And so they're searching the scriptures out. They're trying to figure out, is there any merit in what Paul is saying? And I have brought out this passage about the Bereans many times because for us as Christians, we need to be Bereans. Too often we are willing to either believe what we have always believed without question because it takes too much time and too much energy to look into it any further, or we rely on others who seemingly are professionals and say, well, they know what they're talking about. I'm just going to believe whatever they tell me. So either I'm going to stay in what I've always believed because it takes too much energy to (coughs) search it out myself, or I'm going to believe whatever whoever is the most convincing or charismatic is going to tell me because I'm too lazy to search it out myself. Right, And this is where most Christians fall today. This is the way we've always done things or they're carried away with every wind of doctrine. But the Bereans, whenever they started hearing things, they didn't just outright reject it. Instead, they said, what does the Bible say about this? What does the scripture say? And so they started searching it out and evaluating everything according to the scriptures. They said, is their Bible to back this up? Is what he's saying really true? And no doubt Paul was giving them Uh, chapter and verse. I know there wasn't chapter breaks and verse verse markings and whatnot in the Bible back then. But he could take them back to the writings of the prophets and different things. He could go back into the law and he could say, look at this. This is how God did this. This is how he laid out this foundation. This is what this sacrifice pictured. This is what the Passover lamb was and Jesus is our Passover lamb. This is what it said about the virgin birth and that he was going to be struck down, that he was going to be buried amongst the, the rich people, that he was going to die amongst the uh, criminals, that he was going to do all of these things. And Jesus did it. And they're like, yeah, it's in the Bible. Yeah, it's here. Yeah, it's here. They're going to be like, this man, Jesus, that he's talking about, he was the real deal. He is the Messiah. And it says that, therefore, I pointed out as I was reading at verse number 12, therefore, because they were willing to listen, because they were willing to search it out themselves, because they were able to see it from the scriptures themselves, many of them believed. Not just because someone else told them, not just because it sounded good to them, but because the Bible said so. And Many of them believed. It says also of the honorable women, which were Greeks, and of the men, not a few. So Bree is doing well. Churches planted. There are many believers. There are people getting saved. They're getting a good foundation. They're seeing the things that the Bible taught came to pass. God fulfilled them before their eyes. They accepted Christ, and then we come down to verse number thirteen, and there's a butt. You got to pay attention to the butts in Scripture because they are the hinges. Things turn directions whenever you come to a butt. Remember, I said that Thessalonica was several days' journey from Berea that it was probably some 75 kilometers away from Berea. That's a long journey. But these people were so hostile toward Paul, they were so hateful toward the gospel, that they were following him wherever he went. It sounds as if they heard it all the way back up in Thessalonica. This would have been probably a trade route, And so as the traders were coming from Berea and going up to Thessalonica, they were saying, hey, there's this Jewish preacher that is down in Berea, and he is preaching things that we've never heard before. And the Jews that were at Thessalonica said, we've heard him before. Let's go and find him. And so Paul would have been at Berea for a time for uh, news of this to travel back up to Thessalonica for them to get their posse ready, if you will, and come down to Berea, and they began stirring up the people in Berea as well. If you wonder why people are so hostile toward the gospel, and so hostile toward Christianity, and toward the beliefs that we found upon Scripture, we look no further than this. Whenever people's identity, whenever the things that they have put their faith and their trust in outside of God is confronted by the truth of the gospel, they become angry, they become emotional, they become hard-hearted, right? Mm -hmm. And so they have the same reaction today as they had back then. And so we see that going on uh, on social media, we see it going on in the news, we see it going on within society. This movement against Christians because the gospel is offensive. Okay, Because the gospel does not allow people to be indifferent. They must fall to one side or the other. And so whenever they refuse to accept it, they are hardened against it and they become confrontational. They become hateful toward it because they need to silence it because it comes at their conscience. It It comes at their heart, right? And so they are trying to stamp out the gospel wherever they can find it, but the gospel will not be silenced. And so we come down to verse number 14 and this is where we'll stop today verse number 14 and it says then immediately the brethren sent away paul to go as it was as it were by excuse me and immediately the brethren sent away paul to go as it were to the sea but paul but silas and timothy abode there still so whenever all this commotion is beginning whenever the uh, the jews from thessalonica are stirring up the people at berea Paul decides it's time to leave town again. Because if he stays, there's going to be a a big commotion that comes. There's going to be a danger to these new believers, these new Christians. And so for the cause of Christ and for the sake of these new believers, Paul says, I'm going to bow out gracefully. And I'm going to leave uh, Timothy and Silas behind to disciple these new believers. And so they pretend like they're going to send him out on a boat. Instead, he goes by land down to Athens. But the thing that I wanted to bring out in this verse that was interesting to me, we find it here. And we find it at Thessalonica both. It says, "Then immediately the brethren sent away Paul." We find that up in um, uh, let's see, verse number ten, and the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas, okay? So verse 10, verse 14, both of those times, we see that there is a family, there is brethren, there is a group there. And why I'm bringing this out is whenever Paul first came into this region, he knew no one. He was known of no one. But now he has a family, he has brethren there, and they care about him. They're looking out for him they are protecting him, they are risking their lives for him to send him away and to see him safely and to even accompany him to the next place to see that he gets there safely. And this is the way that it should be within Christianity is that we are bonded together in the family of Christ. We are bonded together in love and we are bonded together with this, um, this common belief, I guess, in the family of God. And it makes strangers, it makes people from different backgrounds, different uh, different social classes, different ethnicities, all these different things, brings them into one family. And we may not have known each other before, but now we're a brother. And so this we see in this church as well, we have a couple different continents represented, several different countries represented, uh, all kinds of differences amongst us, different backgrounds and whatnot. But whenever we become Christians, whenever we come to Christ, we are brethren. There is a bond. There is a connection. There is a love. There is this family that exists because of it that wasn't there before. And it is only the gospel. It is only God that can do that. And so within a very short amount of time, Paul goes from being the uh, itinerant preacher that just showed up and no one knew to being part of the family that they loved and they're looking out for and they're risking their lives for. That's big, isn't it? That should be instructive to us about how we are to function as Christians. Not just in this body, but in Christians as a whole because we are the body of Christ. We are the family of God and we should have a love, a concern, a connection that transcends background, that transcends uh, ethnicity, that transcends uh, personal and social experiences, right? And that's what we see going on here. So in in closing, Paul confronted religion wherever he was at Thessalonica and uh, religion... Their religion wasn't based upon facts. It wasn't based upon truth. It was based upon feelings and whatnot that could not be substantiated by any truth or fact. Whenever fact came, uh, feelings arose, right? And so that was where the violence came from. When we come to Berea, we see the importance of substantiating every, every truth, every message by the gospel, by the scriptures, Right? Make sure what you believe is biblical. And if what you believe is biblical, that's one reason why Paul was so resilient. He didn't have to take it personally. He didn't have to feel as if his identity was being attacked. He didn't have to uh, cower in fear or rise up in anger. That everywhere he went, he was able to go on consistently. That he was able to keep his head. That he was able to be comfortable in his identity in Christ because it was founded upon truth. He knew what he believed. He knew why he believed it. And so in every situation, he was able to stand strong, right? He was able to not react and respond in the way that the Jews were reacting and responding because we have something of substance here. We have a reasonable faith. And so we don't have to respond rashly. We don't have to respond emotionally. We don't have to... Take it personally whenever someone doesn't believe exactly like we do, right? So any questions or any comments on what we look at today?
1: I, I think I have some few questions, but I'll try to put them in one so that we cut off the time. Um, you, you ask us about being how far we can imagine or less. on so mm-hmm. this. It's a little bit small, but it's stressed a lot when it comes to things of, of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, the three questions I have, based, they will be based on, on on verse 5. Okay. It seems like, and you stress a lot about it, it seems like uh, the Jews at that time, we're talking about the faith leader, mm-hmm. I, will, I will assume so.
0: Yeah.
1: When Paul comes in the town, he's always looking for synagogue or mm-hmm. whatever point is there. And in verse 5, it says, the Jews, they, they seem not to believe. Mm-hmm. So the question comes, what they did not believe? If Paul Papa. went to them, the reason with them in scripture. Was there not believing—I'm trying again to ask which is wrong—was not believing in what Paul brought out, or it was not believing at all?
0: Well, it was a refusal, I believe. They were so comfortable, if you will, in continuing the way they've always been and continuing in uh, their religious system— that they didn't want to rock the boat. And so it didn't matter how much Paul brought out proof in, proof in Scripture. They said, I don't care. I don't want to hear it. I have decided this is what I'm going to believe. And so they just uh, stubbornly refused. And you've probably talked to people before and had conversations with people before that were unwilling to consider anything else. They had made up their mind. They were determined... And they refused to even uh, refuse to even consider, and so that's kind of what happened. And what he was reasoning with him in verse number three, he was opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen from the dead. That was what they refused to believe. They said, "No, Christ. What we think of Christ, what we're expecting Christ, we're expecting a king." And Paul's taking back and saying, "Yes, he will be a king." But it's clear in Scripture that first he was going to come to a cross before the crown. And like, no, we're not accepting that our Messiah is going to come and deliver us from the Romans, that he's going to come and make us the most prominent nation and that all the other nations of the world are going to bow down to us. And so it was rooted in pride. So they looked at the the Scriptures and they found the parts that they liked, the parts that played into their pride, and they said, we're going to cling to this, we're going to hold on to this, and a suffering Savior would insult their pride. They're you know, like, we don't want to suffer, we want to conquer. And so we're going to refuse because it doesn't fit our ideologies. Okay?
1: Mm-hmm. So that, that's the question answered in this tree. So I will guess that's the belief that they not believe yeah.
0: in. Yeah, they just refuse. They, that doesn't fit. So, okay, okay so to, to, to put a modern day example with this, Okay, There's a lot of people that refuse to believe in God today because they've made up their mind about what kind of God they think God should be. And so they say, okay, well, I can't believe in God because there's so much suffering in the world. And if God was real, then how is there babies that have cancer? And how is there uh, people who are starving? Why is there AIDS? Why is there this kind of thing? And so how could a loving God create so much suffering And so that is their, their wall. That is their, their point of reference. And so they say, I refuse to believe because what I'm hearing about God doesn't match my expectations of God. And you can go back through scripture and you can start saying, okay, God didn't create that, that these things are the result of sin and God hates sin. He hates suffering. He hates the condition of man, uh, that he's in. And so because he is loved because of all these things, he so loved the world that he came down to remedy to that and he is offering up eternal life and he's got heaven in it. They said, I don't care. There's suffering in the world now so I can't believe God. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. So what, what, what's the next question? <laughs> next, I
1: was trying to put them in two. The next was about Paul not being known. In, in the region of, mm-hmm. where were we, the uh, wherever. Right. Uh, you touch on him not being known. I, I would assume, like, he didn't have
0: yeah, much friends. He didn't have and, friends or family whenever he arrived.
1: Okay, so the question is, when, when uh, I, I will remember you spoke about him speaking even, uh, Greek language, mm-hmm. so which part that was not known if he would have speak Greek language, which seems to me that he was there before? Or, you know, no, it was
0: that uh, before the Roman Empire was the Greek Empire. Yes, And so you had the Hellenistic influence that even in many of the areas of the Middle East and around Israel, uh, there were many Greeks that were there, and there was the effect of the the Greek influence. Yeah. And so many people still spoke Greek throughout the Roman empire mm-hmm. and much of, um, the, the Greek, um, culture had influenced the entire region. Uh, if I would have went further, whenever Paul gets to Athens, Athens was like the center of learning and philosophy. And, um, it was like the, the university town of the day. Okay. Yeah. And so from Athens, you have the philosophers, you have Aristotle, you have um, Archimedes, which was uh, physics and, and math and all these different things. You have it as being the center of learning, and during the Greek Empire, the Greek influence had went all throughout the region, and in Israel still, still uh, many of the people spoke Greek, and they were familiar with the language of Greek, and they had... Uh, A familiarity with the Greek culture even though they were colonized by Rome. Rome. See, Rome was even further away than Greece. So if you look at it on a map, I actually had a map I put up and I didn't turn it around. But if you look at it on a map, you've got Israel and you come around and here's Greece and you come around and here's Italy. And so Greece had a lot greater cultural and social impact on Israel than Rome ever did. And so Paul was familiar with the Greek language and the Greek culture, but whenever he came to Greece, no one there knew him. He'd never been there before.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, I guess that's that's, that's all. It. That okay. Anything else? Um. More of a that, I mean, you talk about the time he spent in in possibly four weeks, and yet he, he goes to the second Thessalonians. He's talking about the man of sin. He's talking about... just the, the, the breadth of what he actually went through at mm-hmm. that time and what he taught. Yeah. It's phenomenal. I mean, most people don't start getting into... It's just more right. of a time If it was that sort of time...
0: Well, it, it makes, makes it. me wonder how long of a time. There was at least yeah. four weeks. Yeah. And he was kicked out of the synagogue after three, three Sabbaths. Yeah. But it could have been months that he was there. It seems like okay. to cover all the ground he covered, he must be there right. for probably longer than... Well, there's two references, I don't have them written down, but in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, where he said that they knew his manner of life and that he wasn't a burden to them, and that he had labored night and day, uh, even with his own hands. So while he was there, he was working, he was engaging as a tent maker, he was, apply, or he was applying his trade, and so he was there long enough to where he had set up shop, he was working and whatnot, and uh, supporting himself while he was preaching while he was teaching more than likely he found himself in a, a prominent place somewhere publicly and he's sitting there so intense while he's talking about the gospel and he's talking about uh, the truth of God's word but how long he was there I don't know for sure but anyway about it I mean he wasn't there for years to give a thorough no yeah. theology there I mean but, yeah he even still the mm-hmm. one cover yeah. All right. anything else? Okay, well, let's go, the Lord, in prayer, and we'll have a, a short break here. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings, Lord. We thank you so much for this time that we've had in your word, Lord. I just pray that you would uh, uh, just use it in our lives, Lord. I pray that you would encourage us. And Lord, just be with each person here, Lord, that you would uh, draw them closer to you. Lord, we just... Uh, Ask you to be at our time, our fellowship, and Lord be at the next service as well. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. And amen.